Hello, I'm Chris Grant, and this is a special presentation of the Permanente Medicine Podcast. As we look ahead to the next phase of managing COVID-19, a shift from pandemic to endemic appears imminent. But what does this change mean for ongoing COVID-19 response? Healthcare in general and society as a whole? The following is an interview with Dr. Stephen Perotti, Kaiser Permanente's National Infectious Disease Leader and Executive Vice President for External Affairs, Communications and Brand with the Permanente Federation. This originally aired on the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 update. Today, we're talking with friend of the show, Dr. Stephen Perotti, Executive Vice President of External Affairs, Communications, and Brand at the Permanente Federation and Associate Executive Director of the Permanente Medical Group in Oakland, California. We're going to be talking about the move from pandemic to endemic over the coming months. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. Perotti, I remember very distinctly about two years ago, uh, the last uh, conference call that we had in our office at AMA headquarters was with you, uh, where we kind of huddled around and listened to your early reports from the front lines out on the West Coast about the pandemic and how you were approaching it. Um, I'm, I'm glad to say that two years later, we're talking about coming out the other end here, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts about this shift from pandemic uh, to endemic. Why don't we just start by talking about what's that mean? Yeah, good to be with you, Todd, and and talking in in the context of a lot more people being actually vaccinated today than what, of course, was possible back in 2020. Um, You know, what I think of when, as an infectious disease specialist and endemic, it means that the disease is still around, um, but it's at a level that is not causing significant disruption um, in our daily lives. Um, that being said, endemic disease uh, can be at different levels. And of course, we've le- lived with endemic diseases in the past, right? We've had measles, mumps, rubella. Before we had vaccines available, those were endemic as well. Um, and what's different about COVID-19 is that we do have a choice now about the level of endemicity. Um, so endemic diseases can be at high levels, or they can be at lower levels. Um, and so where I think we're at a crossroads is that we have an opportunity to actually get that to a lower level, manageable level, where we're not getting impacted in our hospitals, not having to close down schools, close down businesses. Um, and that really is through a combination of a concerted effort around testing, vaccination, isolation, quarantining. Um, that looks uh, a lot more normalized than what we've had to do over the last two years. Now, you talked about some of those formerly endemic disease or endemic diseases uh, that are you know very serious. Do you think we're going to end up more in like influenza territory here? I think what we saw with the latest surge with Omicron, um, in particular, the vaccinated population and the ones that have received boosters that for the most part, people had mild disease or asymptomatic disease. Um, So I think that it's within our grasp, uh, particularly uh, with the populations that are currently eligible um, for boosters, that if we can get that word out, get people's arms uh, with that booster in tow, 
um, that we can move this in a way that uh, the disease is uh, milder. Um, and of course, that's all caveated with the fact that we would always have another variant around the corner. Um, but the hope here, though, is that at least so far, vaccine-based immunity appears to provide very broad-based immunity against multiples of variants. How do we know when we've officially hit the endemic stage with this virus? There's not going to be some alarm. I think everybody thought there would be kind of a more of a you know distinct line drawn here. What's what's what are the signals? So I think actually the CDC's recent guidance uh, gives us a, a bit of a pathway for where that's heading. So, for example, initially with the pandemic, we were and really up until now, I've been measuring infections in the community as a marker for you know whether or not there's significant impact from COVID-19. Um, and this shift to looking at it from a severity of disease standpoint, I think is actually important. I actually endorse that. Uh, um, where we're measuring based on hospitalizations um, and the number of people perhaps populating an intensive care unit related to COVID-19. And I think that's actually relevant. It is following the science because of the um, effectiveness that we're seeing with vaccines. Uh, and so I think, you know, a measure of endemicity really is going to look at how many people are developing severe disease at a given time. And if we're seeing increases in that, We've got to take action. If we're not, um, that's a different set of actions. And that's similar to what we do for influenza uh, year over year. Now, how, how does immunity, uh, which I, I just saw a statistic uh, kind of trying to estimate, you know, pretty significant population of folks that have had uh, COVID. Uh, and now we have vaccines and Omicron. How do those all come together to drive this shift? That's a great question. And so what you're getting at is that there is a mix of vaccine-based immunity and the natural-based immunity. Um, and both have actually the parts to play here, in my opinion. So uh, the vaccine provides that broad-based uh, immunity. It also appears to be protective against really severe disease. Um, we also have data that if people had, quote-unquote, breakthrough infections, they got Omicron on top of having been boosted, that they actually have an even more robust uh, immune response at post-infection. Um, and for those that haven't been vaccinated and have had natural infection, they have at least some narrow-based immunity um, to that particular variant that they got infected with. And we now have enough data to say that those folks are still susceptible to other variants, uh, perhaps down the road. Uh, but what we're really getting at is that we're getting over time, a more immune population. Um, so, you know, we've got populations actually in the U.S. here that now have up to 90% of the population is actually vaccine-based immune. Um, and then you add the natural immunity on top of that. And, you know, you're heading towards a place where you are going to, I think, start to see a leveling off. Again, with the caveat that hopefully we don't have another variant out of the blue like Omicron. Yeah, I keep thinking to myself, fingers crossed uh, every time we say that, and let's hope that we have uh, indeed a window here. Um, one group uh, that isn't eligible yet for vaccines, uh, still waiting for authorization for younger children under five. How, how important is it um, that this population be vaccinated to the move toward endemic? 
I, I think actually uh, vaccine-based immunity for children is critically important um, from a couple of perspectives. So it, it's obvious for those children themselves um, it, it, that they need the protection, um, even though they're less likely to develop severe disease, they can. Um, and so being able to protect those individuals in themselves is important. But on top of that, um, it impacts people, parents. Um, you know, can I go on a trip? Can I go out to dinner? Can I, uh, you know, send my kids to school? Um, that's all important. And of course, it's not just the parents, it's also the other children in the household who, even though they have vaccine-based immunity, are still being potentially exposed or could expose um, those children at home. So, you know, knock on wood, I, I'm hopeful that we do have some recommendations in the near future for the six-month to four-year-olds um, to get vaccinated. I do think that is a part of uh, coming out of pandemic stage and more of an endemic stage. And really, the hope would be over the next couple of months that we do have uh, good news on that front. Well, speaking of kind of coming out of the pandemic stage, you know, we've been through um, mask mandates and we've had, you know, pretty large scale shutdowns that are, you know, not often part of an endemic conversation. Um, but vaccines are and will remain. Um, do you see vaccine mandates playing a role as we progress into this stage? So vaccine mandates actually uh, played a role, particularly in the healthcare uh, sector, um, and actually remain in force uh, based on some decisions that were made at the national level over the last couple of months. And, and I think that has actually been important. I can speak to you know our experience that you know we've had less people um, get breakthrough infections and infections altogether because of the fact that the healthcare workforce is now largely vaccinated. Um, you know, the there have been employers uh, who have also pushed uh, the vaccine mandate, um, even though, and this was before the Supreme Court rendered its decision. Uh, I think that's also played a role um, in blunting uh, the effects of uh, Omicron, you know, particularly with our hospitalization rates. Um, do I see that as a, a future forever? Um, hard to say. I think we need to follow the science. Um, we need to understand, you know, with future boosters, what's the level of effect uh, with immunity? What's the level of effect with preventing uh, additional surges? Um, and then being able to make a, a decision uh, at that given point in time. Well, your home state, California, recently became the first state to formally, sh formally shift um, to this kind of endemic approach. Are you uh, in agreement with this approach and, uh, and how important is it to have uh, kind of buy-in at the state level as we move in this new direction? So I, I think actually this is the time to be having that conversation about uh, moving to an endemic state and having those collective conversations. So um, certainly all public health really boils down to local decision-making. Um, so for the state to actually take a step um, and initiate that conversation so that uh, health systems, physicians uh, can uh, converse with their public health colleagues and actually come up with a unified response that is then explainable to the general public is, I think, is critically important. Uh, some of the steps that were outlined in the, the California recommendations, I think, are highly uh, relevant. Um, when I think about testing, you know, we've taken a, a very broad-based approach to testing that really has 
melded both public health and um, you know, community health, as well as uh, basic medical care all in one, um, it's time to probably move beyond that. Um, so for example, I'll just give you one with California, um, they're going to do surveillance uh, testing on wastewater to understand whether there's an increase in number of uh, virions uh, that are recoverable or PCR positive samples um, as a way of telling us whether we're actually starting to see increased activity in the community, as opposed to requiring and putting on the backs of our patients or even us as physicians to do broad-based surveillance testing, um, particularly with the shortages of tests that we've had available. So it, it's working towards getting to a more sustainable approach, um, you know, making sure that therapeutics and masks are available when we need them. Um, and setting those thresholds, uh, you know, whether it's hospitalization rates or ICU rates, and then saying, this is the time to put on the masks. And then when you're below that threshold, take off the masks. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of therapeutics, how does the, uh, you know, the, the presence and hopefully the appropriate supply of treatments help uh, power this shift? Do we need to get better in those areas? What's, what's holding us back? No question uh, that we got to get uh, more therapeutics available, and it's not just the monoclonal antibodies. Um, and you know, I think that you know when you're talking about an endemic state, um, you've got to have the backstop that you know helps patients uh, beyond just the vaccine. And here's the vaccine, and prevention is of course the best medicine. But people are going to get uh, ill in an endemic setting. Um, ideally, these therapeutics, many of them are given before somebody requires a hospitalization. That means you've got to have them at your fingertips. Um, so I think there's work to be done nationally um, with the manufacturers to make sure that we have enough supply available. Um, if we need to stockpile um, you know, for uh, particular exacerbations and anticipate that we might have states where we have higher prevalence um, situations, um, that the state governments and federal governments are preparing for that as well. What, um, you know, what role do you see large health systems like Permanente playing as this shift begins? So I think a couple of things. One is uh, the importance of messaging um, about what number one endemic means, but number two, what we're doing with isolation, quarantine testing and therapeutics and vaccination and encountering the misinformation and disinformation that's out there. I think we have a responsibility as a system, as individual physicians to continue to combat that. Uh, the more that we can have a unified voice with public health um, will help uh, counter those messages. Um, I'll be honest with you, I think that we as physicians got to get out there on social media um, and, and you know, have our own voice out there. So I think that's uh, one big way we can uh, affect change. And then also informing public policy. So informing um, some of these plans that I, you were referencing earlier, um, both at the national level and then at our state levels or state medical associations. Um, that's another place where we can have tremendous influence. I'm just curious, um, operationally and practically, how are you preparing for this shift at your own system? Well, that's a great question. So, by the way, this is a massive shift. I mean, you think about 
the mindset that we've been in um, over the last two years and with all the changes in guidelines um, and, and changes in strategies. Um, I think the last time we talked, we were still talking about maybe trying to contain this thing or eradicate it, uh, <laughs> right? And then it was all about mitigating it. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about living with it. Um, and, and so uh, that is a mind shift uh, and, and it's not like a, a flip of the switch. Uh, and, and so it really is requiring conversations all the way down to the you know clinic unit level um, and talking through you know people's concerns and, and it runs the full gamut and spectrum. Uh, some people uh, are already done with this. Um, they've already taken off all the masks. There are other people who are not comfortable with that at all. Um, and so being able to talk through those things uh, and then also talk through the reasoning about why things are different now here in March of 2022 as opposed to March of 2020. Yeah, one of the things, obviously, as we've talked over the last two years, that characterizes this time is just the constant learning, new evidence, new science, driving changes in how we approach this. Are you are you finding that people can still hang on with more learning about you know this mental shift? I, you know, so I, let, let's be honest, people are really fatigued. They're, they're, they're pretty tired here. I, I think they're also tired of the, the change, you know, from literally day to day where the recommendations were flipping, you know, back and forth. Um, so one of the things that, that we've been doing is that we've heard that and, uh, and to commit to, you know, we're going to try to, you know, normalize actually the recommendations um, and, and we're not necessarily going for complete perfection with the latest uh, paper that was printed yesterday as a preprint, um, but to, to you know follow what the generalized evidence is um, and to you know try to stick with some general guidance short of again something coming completely out of the blue. Um, I think that's really important. I think people need some stability. Mm-hmm. Um, recommendations. Uh, that has been some of the messaging that, that we've been providing both internally at, at, at Permanente, but also to our, our public health colleagues um, that, that we actually, can we try to stick with some recommendations for some longer period of time than we've had in the past? Yeah, I'm sure. And in the, in the, in the look back at this, the whole subject of messaging uh, will be a very a fruitful area to explore. Uh, since it's just been uh, such a challenge over the course of these years. Um, You know, when you talk about the mental shift too, uh, there is this element that needs to be put in context, which is about risk. And I had a chance to talk to Dr. Paul Offit, the pediatrician, uh, last week. He's just written a book about risk and medical innovation. And one of the things that he said was just people are really bad uh, at assessing risk and they put too much emphasis on uh, you know, the, the risk of the treatment as opposed to the risk of getting it. How Talk to me about how you're thinking about risk and how you're advising people on that now. So I, let me give you an anecdotal example of this. So um, I remember um, a, a meeting where we were talking about, can we be in person as opposed to being virtual? And, and it was a meeting that was relatively important. Um, and, you know, again, I as much as you know, we've got technology available. There, there's nothing like you know being able to be in the same room, read uh, people, break bread. You know, literally break bread. You actually eat together. 
together. Um, and, and there was, a, again, a spectrum of people who were ready to do it. And then there were other people who weren't. Um, and so what we ended up doing is I said, well, let's, let's actually go through a little bit of an exercise. And, and everybody's fully vaccinated in, in the cohort we were talking about. And um, you know, we said, what's the relative risk of you potentially catching COVID if you have an in-person meeting? And then what's your relative risk of getting into a car accident? And, and are you driving today? Are you going to go someplace? Um, and when we compared those two risks, people were like, oh, okay, I'm ready to come to that meeting. Uh, it, it, it's almost like, you know, as human beings, we've got to be able to contextualize risk um, because I, I think when you just throw out numbers and say it's one in a million or one in two million, you, you don't know what that really means. Um, so I think we actually have to, get to levels of being able to talk to our patients, uh, talk to the general public in ways that are are much more consumable and understandable. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, there's always kind of an asterisk after, uh, you know, what we say, which is, you know, you know, provided there's not a new variant. Do you feel pretty prepared? Should there be uh, a development on that end uh, about how to kind of shift quickly back into the the pandemic mode or prevention mode uh, to prevent something like this from happening again? So I think um, that actually that is going to be one of the big learnings coming out of um, this whole experience is that we need to be better prepared. Um, I am encouraged actually, uh, and I'm looking at this from like a, a national policy perspective, um, that hopefully they're going to move something called the Prevent Act forward, um, which is actually to have a better prepared public health infrastructure um, in making that investment. Um, in you know, from a standpoint of uh, you know, large health system um, and in our physician practice at Permanente, um, we are definitely um, reevaluating uh, what do we need to have to be able to spring into action. Um, and, you know, we've got experience in this again, you know, we, we prepared before all of this for our annual flu season. Um, now we've got to be prepared for, you know, potential COVID ups and downs, um, that are not tied to a season. Um, and so that actually has been some of the operational discussions that we've had. It's okay. How can we, you know, turn on the isolation, turn on the search capacity, um, and, and do it rather than doing it as an emergency response. Uh, it's part of actually our normal um, business related response, uh, our normal healthcare response when something comes up. That is going to be so important. Dr. Prodi, I just want to say thank you for your continued thought leadership over these couple of years. And uh, thanks to you and the folks at Permanente for all the work you've done to help us hopefully merge into this endemic period. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update. We'll be back with another segment soon. In the meantime, for more information on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. Thanks for listening to this special presentation of the Permanente Medicine Podcast. My thanks to the American Medical Association and Dr. Perotti. And be sure to subscribe to the Permanente Medicine Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud so you'll be notified when we release our new season later this year.